Well, the promise that God makes is that the great God who reigns uh, promises this, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. And so if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, as God draws near to us through his word. As you're turning there, just a couple of quick announcements. Uh, One is we were scheduled to have family night um, tonight, which is a time of family teaching and worship and dinner together um, in the pavilion. But for the third time out of four, we're going to have to cancel it because of the weather. It's just too wet over there and won't really have a time to dry out. Instead, we're going to do our Zoom corporate prayer. I'll be sending out an email with a link to that and encourage you to join us for that. Secondly, we're in the middle of trying to gather um, some older saints who are willing to pray for younger families. We're calling it Pray For Me campaign. We're going to assign younger families to some of the older. um, And if you're wondering where you fit, um, if you are older, um, my kids say I'm in that category. So if you're older than me, then sign up um, and pray uh, for some of the younger families. You can sign up over there or email um, Adam um, or the church office, and we will connect you with some of the younger families um, to pray for them. So, 1 Peter chapter 4, starting with verse 1. If you um, are maybe new to Christianity and don't have a Bible, we would, uh, we've printed the text for you, but we would also love to send you a Bible. And so, just grab me afterwards and tell me, I don't have a Bible, I'd love to have a Bible, we will give you one. We would love for you to have God's Word in your hands. 1 Peter chapter 1 starting or 1 Peter chapter 4 starting with verse 1 Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God for the time that is past suffices for doing what the gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, Even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. This is God's Word. We should ask His blessing. Would you pray with me again? Lord, as we come to Your Word, we want to hear Your voice and experience Your power, the same voice and power that calmed the chaos of creation and made it flourish. The same voice that spoke and made mountains shake and valleys deepen. We pray that that same voice that called the dead man Lazarus out of the grave to new life would speak to us with that kind of new creation, redemptive power today. So, Holy Spirit, Take us by our hearts and lead us to Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, 
throughout the history of the church, Christians have often found themselves on the weird side of morality. Even in the first century, Christians were maligned because of their sexual ethic. The way they worshipped was radically different than the surrounding cultures, and they were increasingly pushed to the side, and, and not much has changed, right? Distinctively, a biblical ethic, sexual ethic in particular, is becoming more and more increasingly, increasingly strange and pushing pressure off to the side. Right, and here's the message that, that Peter has been reiterating over and over and over again in his letter. You can't be hip and holy at the same time. Because if you're going to follow Jesus, eventually you will find yourself at crossways to the world in a very fundamental level. And while that may not be the best selling point, if you're considering following Jesus, you might not yet be a Christian, and that might be the worst sales job you have ever heard. But on the flip side, it's actually, I think, the good news that we need because the world just isn't working right, right now. And it never has. Humanity has always been on the wrong side of history ever since the first man brought sin into the world. Our world is in need of something new, radically new, especially in today's age with a broken creation that's vulnerable to fires and storms and a broken body that is vulnerable to a virus that we can't even see and political systems that are vulnerable to instability. We intuitively feel our need for redemption and renewal because we've always been on the wrong side of history. But when Jesus brings renewal, it is always radical. It's going to lead his people to live radically different lives than the rest of the world. You heard this in our call to confession from Leviticus 19, be holy for I am holy. And, and Adam, as Adam read our Old Testament scripture, the laws are, of God are good, but they're different than the rest of the world. And they will lead to health and life forever because they come from the Lord. But in this way, following Jesus is radical. But when I use radical, I mean it in the technical sense of the world, not just different, because the Latin word for radical, the root means root. It gets down to the root because the principle of human life is that the fruit of our lives always comes out of the root of our hearts. And so when Jesus comes into our lives, he changes the root of our hearts. He does a radical work on his people and then implants a new heart in us. And that is what should lead to different living. And the different living that Peter is particularly concerned with here in 1 Peter 4 is at the level of our desires or our want-tos. So look at verse 3. 
Peter tells his people that they should live differently than the surrounding culture because they have been redeemed by Jesus for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles hear that sort of code word for people who are not Christians, who are not one with Jesus, who are not followers of Jesus, for that time that passed suffices for what Gentiles want to do. There's that language of want-tos. And the want-tos manifest themselves living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And as a result, verse for the people who don't belong to Jesus, the Gentiles, are surprised by this radical change. And as a result, they're going to begin to malign you because you don't fit in. But Peter isn't just telling them, and I think this is really the key to gospel transformation, because Peter isn't just telling them, y'all need to stop doing the wrong things, and you need to start doing the right things, all for the sake of Jesus. And I, I think that's, that's hopeless and powerless. That is the form that most religion, particularly in the South, takes. Stop doing the wrong things. Start doing the right things, all for the sake of Jesus. He died for you. Don't you think he deserves your best? But that is a powerless, graceless Christianity that has no ability to transform us at the root level because at the end of the day, it leaves us with ourselves, with our own strength, with our own abilities, with our own power. And if you're anything like me, there just ain't much there. And so rather, this is what Peter's telling them. You need to become who you already are in Christ. He's told them earlier in chapter 2, you have this tremendous dignity in Christ, and it's been bestowed on you. You didn't earn it. God gave it to you as a gift. He takes from Jesus and gives this to you. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light once. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And that gifted dignity should lead to the end of holy living. Because as Peter often does, he goes beyond our behavior into the deeper parts of our being. That's, in fact, what the Bible always does. It, does. it always starts digging under the behavior level into the heart level, particularly into the motivation and desire level. And so he's looking for heart level change at the level of our desires, which creates a new way of dealing with our desires, particularly the suffering of self-denial. Because you see that the world says, the world says this, this is the message that comes at us from all levels. We swim in this message, and it goes like this. If you can fulfill your desires, you will flourish with joy. But Jesus says, your desires are corrupted, and, you, and they need to be redeemed. And the pathway to that is self-denial. And so, verse 2 as God's beloved people, live for the rest of the time in the flesh 
and that's code word for our bodies, physical flesh. Live for the rest of the time in your bodies, no longer for your passions, your want-tos, your desire, but for the will of God. But the gospel key to unlocking that way of living is in verse 1. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with that same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. See, Jesus is in, this is what Jesus is saying. He's, saying. he's not saying, here's the path, take it. It's the path of denying your desires. That's not what he's saying. Instead, he's saying this. You, by God's grace, have been taken out of that path of fulfilling your desires that leads to your destruction, and you've been put on my path. I've already gone this way. It's hard now because it's the path of suffering. But then I've proven it's the path of resurrection and glory. Deny yourself by not indulging the flesh because you have entered on a new path of resurrection life that has ceased from sin. This is my path. He's not saying, I'm going to show you the way. I, instead, I've blazed this trail through you. Through suffering to life. I remember caving with some guys here at the church. And here's the thing about caving. I kind of get freaked out in tight spaces. I mean, like, freaked out. Caving is not my thing. Um, My son had talked me into it. um, And we had gotten ourselves into um, a four-foot-by-four-foot tunnel. Um, which was probably, it felt less like a tunnel and more like a drinking straw, right? And so I'm freaking out. I can't, I'm thinking to myself, I can't do this. I can't breathe. I can't make another step. I'm not going back. I'm not going forward. I am just going to die here because it's too hard and I'm afraid. And so this is what I hear from the other side in front of me. Hang in there. I've been through this way before, and you are almost done. And on the other side, the view is amazing. And you see, that's what Jesus says to his people. Hang in there. I've been through this way before. I have suffered in the flesh by denying myself for the sake of God's mission, which was to redeem you. You are almost through. And the view on the other side is glorious, and it leads to life. The sense, therefore, in verse 1, it points us back. It's a joining phrase. It transitions us from the end of chapter 3 to the beginning of chapter 4. And the sense really transitions us into gospel application. Because Jeff Wilkins made this point a few weeks ago, at the end of chapter 3, the point that Peter is making is that Jesus wins. He's taken his throne after having suffered in the flesh. So look back at verse 18. For Christ, of chapter 3, verse 18 of chapter 3, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And, right, and then look at verse 
22, he suffered, was resurrected and made alive. Verse 22, he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And what that means for you, if your faith is in Jesus, if you're a follower of his, is that you are united to him. And that simply means this, what's true about Jesus is true about you. He didn't just blaze that path. He blazed that path in your place, a life of suffering in the flesh, raised to new life, seated in glory as the one in your place. And that means two things. Objectively, what is true about Jesus is true about you. You are beloved by God because Jesus blazed that path. No matter what you do in your sin, objectively, God says, sin's forgiven, righteous in my sight, seated with my son, given my spirit. That is what is most objectively true about you, regardless of what you have done or are doing if your faith is in Christ. But it also means, as a result, subjectively, our experience mirrors Jesus's. You've begun a journey on his path. And his path goes through suffering in the flesh to the end of a glorious reign with him in the new heavens and new earth. And so Peter says, since Therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sins. Arm yourself is military language. It's the language of battle. Put this mindset on that, was, that is yours in Christ Jesus. It ring bells. It's Philippians chapter 2. Have this mindset, the life I live is not my own. I belong, body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Arm yourselves with this because you are in the midst of fighting with sin, and sin as a power is stronger than any of us. Our desires are all out of whack because they are being powered by the nuclear reactor of sin. And we don't have the resources to fight that power in ourselves because sin is greater than your willpower. It's greater than your scheming plans. The nuclear reactor of sin is more powerful than your ability to constrain it. No fence will hold it in. No scheming will stop it from exploding, left to our own resources, sin will always win. And is that not the history of mankind? We tend towards evil. The long scope of history bends, as Martin Luther King said, towards justice, and it has to, because left to ourselves without God's intervention, it will tend towards evil because there is an evil hidden in our hearts that needs to be destroyed by Jesus. There's a lot of talk about systemic racism. The Bible wants to affirm this. 
but not as a system that's out there. Because the question you have to ask is, how did the system get corrupt in the first place? I mean, how did, how did the system get utilized in such a way to oppress other people? And the Bible's answer to that is because there is a system of oppression at work and it is in all of our hearts. A heart that desires to see my own advance in this world at the expense of others. And the long history of the arc of oppression is that the oppressors, when they gain power, often and always become the oppressed. Because that is what is in my heart and your heart too. And the only way that that gets killed is when Jesus takes his power to redeem us from our own selfish desires. But that power, and here's Peter's point, is only accessible to those who are willing to take Jesus' path of suffering through self denial. Arm yourselves for this fight against sin with this same way of thinking that suffering by denying ourselves is the pathway of gospel power. The cross establishes the pattern of the Christian life. Verse 1, since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh, now for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. 4, verse 18 of chapter 3, Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And notice in this that, that Peter, in verse 18 of chapter 3, while sort of laying the groundwork for this concept of suffering through self-denial is the pathway to gospel power, He's making a simple declaration. This is the way God deals with sin. He dealt with sin through the suffering of Jesus so that the righteous suffered for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. That's the heart of the gospel. Jesus died the death I should have died. He lived the life I couldn't live. He did so so that in my sin he might bring us to God. But the second part of verse 3 uh, verse 18, chapter 3, also is in Peter's mind because he was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. As a result, Jesus suffered, verse 1, in the flesh for sins and then made alive in the Spirit. In other words, he suffered under the curse of sin and was raised as a result to new existence. A new creation was made alive in the Spirit. Jesus won the definitive battle with sin at the cross and was raised for victory. And that doesn't mean that those who are suffering in the flesh ceasing from sin, it means that Jesus has removed us from the reigning power of sin and has become the new reigning power in our lives, that Jesus is greater than the sin that is in us. Good news? Amen. You see, it's not that sin has died. 
Sin's still working in us. That's why we've got to arm ourselves with this way of thinking. And you see, that's what creates the tension. Because life with Jesus is like a guerrilla war in the hidden desires of our hearts. Because sin is like a terrorist. It's always lurking in the shadows. And so we have to arm ourselves with this way of thinking, I'm on Jesus' path. And it's a path of redemptive suffering, of self-denial in my body, not giving in to my want-tos and my desires. Because when you begin that way, it begins to, we start down that path, it feels like I'm giving up so much. And what Peter is promising us is, no, you are in the pursuit of resurrection life. We have to go door to door, knocking on our heart's desires, looking for the terrorists of sinful desire that's always lurking in the shadows. In other words, we've got to be suspicious of our desires and put them down so we can take up our cross and follow Jesus in the pathway of life. And so then Peter's conclusion is, as a result, don't live like you used to because that's just no longer who you are. Now, he says, with the time that's remaining in this world, live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And he makes this really interesting and compelling point. And it goes like this. Since you've been brought into this new creation by union with Jesus, you're one with him. He went through suffering, was raised from the dead, is seated. That's your new existence. And it's going somewhere. And so live distinctively because you're sojourners and aliens with Jesus. And you're going to enter into his glory one day. Verse 3. For the time that has passed suffices. It's enough. For doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join in with the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And you hear Peter's point? He's saying to his people, he's saying to us, that way of living, you've done enough of that. The time in the past, before God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, before God redeemed you from your own sinful passions, by his grace, through the work of Jesus, you've done enough of that. That time is sufficient. See, in the world that's, that says to us, give in to your cravings and desires, and you'll find life. In other words, do what you want to do. Jesus now says to us, you've done enough of that. It didn't lead any life. It only took you by the throat and choked life out of you. And if you want to know where that is going, the road they're on isn't the yellow brick road that leads to ecstasy and joy. It is a road that leads to destruction and judgment. So imagine Peter saying to his people, don't live that way anymore because that's just not who you are now. 
Imagine little orphan Annie. She grew up in an orphanage where she learned that the way to survive was to lie, cheat, and steal. But now she's been brought into a new realm, a new reality, all by the work of another, a new existence, a new home. Somebody else did all the work and rescued her from that lifestyle into his home. But what does she immediately start to do when she gets inside? She still thinks of herself as an orphan. I've got to lie, cheat, and steal. I've got to connive and manipulate because she thinks she has to slave away to earn her place. She has taken the old lifestyle. She has been taken out of it, but that old way of thinking has not yet been taken out of her. And so she has to be reminded that way of living was for your old life. You've done enough time in that world. Don't go back to that world. Let's live in this better world with access to the power of our gracious king and the love of our generous father and the sin-killing fellowship of the spirit of the resurrection. That's who we are in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your table, it is with this urgent need. Remind us again that this is who we really are. So that we could live out of this grand reality, you were crucified for our sins and raised for our justification. That we could live out of this crucial reality that that the time has passed. We don't sit at the table of drunkenness and debauchery and sexual immorality anymore. That's not our table. We sit at the table of a holy king who loves us. And so help us for your sake to suffer in the flesh, to deny our desires so that we might kill sin with your gospel and be invigorated with your life. Feed us, we pray, with these ordinary elements. Take this ordinary bread and wine and use it to the extraordinary end of sealing your promises to us that we might believe and be refreshed. For we pray this, our Savior, in your name. Amen.